people need ordering principles. Twelve rules. Hello, welcome to 12 Rules for What, as ever my name is Sam. I'm joined by my intrepid co-host, Alex, (laughs) who hates being introduced, but also insists on it. And we are really, really happy to be here with Annie Kelly, uh, who you may have heard from the QAnon Anonymous podcast, who is also a really fantastic researcher into the far right and also QAnon anti-lockdown in her own right. Thanks so much for having me. What is QAnon? I'm sure everyone knows, but regardless. (laughs) So I would say... I mean, I think the simple answer is it's a conspiracy theory. I think probably the more accurate answer is it's a a network of conspiracy theories by now and sort of expanded out. Um, But its central locus began when um, an anonymous poster on the image board board 4chan um, declared themselves to be a, a top, security official um, in the Trump administration and that the Trump administration were doing a secret kind of behind the scenes coup essentially against um, the deep state. And I think actually this very first post said that Hillary Clinton was going to be arrested in a week's time or I might have the timing wrong on that, but it was, it was a really, really short window of time essentially. Um, And what was kind of interesting about this was, you know, this is a really, common genre of post on 4chan uh you know kind of pretending to be someone um on the inside of you know um yeah security services and um yeah the fbi the cia and stuff like that um it's a really common genre of post and you know um it seems very kind of strange looking back now but it didn't really like seem immediately obvious that this one would gain as much attention as it did um and this user or possibly these users uh, kept on posting um, um, under the under the label Q um, and their posts became known as Q drops and they were often very cryptic. Um, they s- had a kind of slight surrealist quality to them sometimes um, and this would lead people to begin uh, believing, you know, doing the work, I suppose, of of decoding those posts or uh, unpacking them. Um, some people in the community or the QAnon community, I suppose, call it kind of um, baking, um, baking the Q drops, trying to trying to figure out what they possibly mean. Um, and this entire legend or kind of mythos of sort of um, the exact kind of crimes of the deep state, um, the exact kind of nature of the allegations against Hillary Clinton and her compatriots, um, really kind of spun off into this sort of fantasy term, uh, which involved, you know, satanic rituals and child sacrifice and pedophilia. Um, and I should make clear that in the Q-drops themselves, they don't actually really mention children all that much, but that does seem to be almost one of the main tenets now of the kind of conspiracy network or, or um, its true believers, um, is that, you know, it's not just a... Um, fight between kind of um, a good politician and the current kind of corrupt administration. Um, but almost in many believers' eyes, it has a slightly supernatural quality, um, fighting against kind of demonic forces uh, represented in the classic sense by the Democratic Party. But 
in the US, but I think kind of expanding out um, in the minds of many of its believers, particularly on the international level. I'm really interested in this expansion. So, um, mm-hmm. and of course, and the way in which the, the the conspiracy changes as it moves to new international territories. Mm-hmm. It's always seemed to me, at least in its kind of initial, um, when I think I was first aware of it in like 2018, I think, um, it always seemed to me to be a very precisely, specifically American thing. Um, maybe that's naive. Obviously, it is now naive because it's just proven not to be true <laughs> that it has expanded to the UK, and particularly Germany and also Brazil. Um, these are kind of the places where it's kind of become got like most purchases. So, what do you think is the what, what is the process of this expansion, and um, does it change as it expands? I mean, the Democrats, Hillary Clinton, John Podesta, you know, uh, all these people are not such big figures in UK mm. life. Obviously, um, they're not big figures in German life. Obviously, and they're also not big figures in Brazilian life. So, I'm, I'm kind of wondering, like, what how do how do things change? How does the conspiracy change as it, for example, comes to the UK? Yeah, it's a really interesting question because when I first started reporting on QAnon um, for the QAnon Anonymous podcast, I was their UK correspondent. So it was my job to sort of track down UK QAnon movements. And this would have been, I think, yeah, late 2019. Um, And at that point, it didn't particularly look very different to the US version you know, the UK was semi-consistently number two in kind of producing uh, QAnon content. Uh, Sometimes, you know, uh, Australia overtook us or sometimes Canada overtook us, but more or less we were, yeah, second only to the US. But it all just seemed like repeating the same talking points, do you know? Uh, It didn't seem to have much of its own personal character. Um. But one thing I noticed, I think, um, at the beginning of lockdown was um, how it really changed. It it suddenly really, really quickly evolved and began diffusing um, on, I suppose, yeah, more mainstream social media sites like Facebook and Instagram. Um, and as it did, it also seemed to change in style and character. Um, and I think probably the best example of that is how QAnon star almost seemed to fall um, and what rose in its ascendance was uh, Save the Children, which I should make clear is um, not affiliated with the UK charity of the same name. And I think they've had a lot of grief for that. But almost quite understandably, I think, focused less on, as you say, these kind of figures who do not share the same kind of relevance to British people's kind of like imagination as Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton and focused more on the allegations of uh, child sex trafficking and uh, paedophilia. And that kind of made sense to me that as this conspiracy theory diffused, not only through these quite sort of niche conspiratorial groups, but um, I suppose quote unquote ordinary people who may not have actually been involved in a kind of online conspiracy before um that those british people wouldn't necessarily find the uh element of QAnon, which goes you know trust the plan uh, president trump is going to sort this all out um that's not particularly compelling to people for whom trump is nothing more than a foreign president you know um and 
you know, I don't think they really find the kind of political theatre and drama quite as exciting because it's just happening so far away. Um, but what they did seem to be really gripped by was, um, yes, this kind of idea of a, of a cabal which kind of engages in sort of um, ritualistic um, sex practices and this kind of thing. Um, and actually it began to sort of attach itself um, to prior kind of British sex scandals or conspiracy theories. Um, so a really obvious one that most British people will understand is like Jimmy Savile um, and the kind of BBC cover-up um, around un until his death um, around kind of the crimes that he got away with. But also to, I suppose, yeah, these kind of little moments in British tabloid history. So one aspect I found really interesting uh, was how it attached itself to the death of Jill Dando, who was a crime watch presenter what? in the 90s. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sorry, that took me completely off guard. <laughs> yeah, it's, but it's really interesting um, that they sort of looked at that kind of... Um, yeah, kind of quite tragic and mysterious death that, you know, kind of played out on tabloids and then the news and stuff and decided that she had been about to blow the whistle, essentially, um, on the cabal and she was killed for it. Um, and I found that really interesting because it's almost doing what QAnon in the US does, where it kind of looks back at older kind of historical events and uh, attaches meaning to them as uh, at the same time as it attaches, it gives you a lens with which to um, examine all kind of contemporary, modern, ongoing events as well. Uh, so, for instance, how QAnon sort of wraps itself up in the kind of JFK assassination and had a, a figure who I actually haven't heard from for a while who says that he's J the secret son of um, JFK and that kind of stuff. It seemed to be kind of almost doing the same thing, but now for British culture um, and sort of just evolving as needed, um, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the Gildander thing. It was interesting how it kind of generalised out to apply most of the UK with the Save the Children thing and now it's specifying back again in, mm. in some ways. I'm not sure how how far that process will go considering everyone's on the internet and it's kind of, there's like, kind of like a very internet kind of culture around this whole yeah. thing. But it's, yeah, the Gildander thing threw me. <laughs> yeah, I know it threw me as well. I saw it like, you know... It was kind of an infographic going around in one of these Save the Children groups where it was, you know, saying, um, if you've got a friend who doesn't believe you, you know, tell them to look up what happened to Jill Dando or something. And I was like, what? Um, because I sort of remember that happening when I was at school, but I had no idea how it could be connected to this, you know, and I, yeah, fell down that rabbit hole. You, um, I get a, can I, sorry, can I get a br very brief red pill here? I don't know who Jill Dando is. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> Uh, who is she and what happened to her? <laughs> she was a BBC presenter in the 90s and uh, she presented Crime Watch. Um, and she was shot outside her home. And I think someone was arrested and I believe actually even convicted for it. He was a sort of, um, yeah, I mean, in that very kind of slightly outdated 90s style, like all of the press called him like a deranged super fan. Uh, but I think like stalker is probably what we would call someone like that now. Uh, but there was a question of his actual culpability of whether he was actually capable 
of doing it and um yeah varying I think debates over whether he was stitched up or not and he was actually acquitted um a few years later so it's officially unsolved but um that obviously is red meat to (laughs) conspiracy (laughs) theorists yeah I I I now believe in QAnon thank you 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 pinpointed the um the kind of lockdown the pandemic as a kind of and lots of people have done this like QAnon explodes in popularity along with the the, the COVID-19 pandemic. Mm-hmm. Why do you think this is? Because I, I, I'm not, I've been trying to think this through and I, I don't think it's as simple as everyone being at home and on the internet and all locked down. No. Because of course, lockdowns aren't that complete. And mm. it's, I think there's something deeper going on. What do you think? I agree. Yeah, I think, you know, that's certainly like the, the that lays the groundwork. Lots of people, you know, spending more time alone and indoors, I think is, um, you know certainly important but I think there's also something else going on um and not to blow my own horn but I think I predicted it before um it actually happened as well which was to do I think with people kind of suddenly facing like the the prospect of their own death uh which I think a pandemic does um and particularly I think at that very early stage where so little was known about COVID um, and it felt kind of very mysterious and everyone kind of had this very sort of anticipatory um, kind of aspect of you know we sort of have this feeling it's going to get worse but we don't know how much worse and I think in that in those circumstances it can people often look at me a little bit like I'm mad when I say you know a conspiracy theory can be comforting um, especially one which involves, yeah, such horrific acts as a kind of satanic cabal that kind of controls the world. But in a way, it does reorient you in, you know, the classic fight between good and evil. Um, and th- I think that can be comforting, particularly when you have something as kind of faceless as a virus. Um, and I think people, people's instinct uh, when you face an enemy like that is to personalize it somehow, um, to kind of uh, humanize it. And you can kind of see this, I think, in a really obvious example is kind of blaming, um, yeah, blaming kind of outbreaks on kind of immigrants or ethnic minorities and stuff like that. That feels like a really obvious um, way of personalizing it. But I also think that, you know, uh, there's another way, which is just to... um, you know, almost either deny or ignore the existence of the virus and instead kind of focus on all the immediate impacts that are happening to you and say that this is the kind of result of a sort of sinister cabal, uh, something that is, you know, um, ever-present, ever-powerful and in control of everything you do. Um, And I think that can, yeah, it sounds strange to say that it's psychologically comforting because it's such a scary prospect, but it does, I think, make things easier in terms of identifiable enemies. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's totally compelling. I think that's, that's really important. Um, I do think there's a kind of a a particular storyline that's not just, it's it's related to COVID, but exactly when do we get these first outbreaks of kind of anti-lockdown um, QAnon belief in the UK because I remember so mm. give a basic kind of timeline you know uh, it's very obvious something is happening in China the whole of January mm. big lockdown January 23rd in Wuhan 
people are like, oh, that doesn't matter. <laughs> it's in China. <laughs> that's, that's absurd. Doesn't no one cares? Um, and then there's a um, uh, lot of uh, things happening in very early March in Italy. And there's like, oh, well, that that's that's a long way away. It's in Italy. That'll never happen here. Um, and then by the 23rd of March, there's a first UK lockdown. And I think there's a there's an immediate national sense something urgent has happened. There mm-hmm. probably wouldn't have been if, for example, Corbyn had been elected in 2019 and uh, he'd given that speech. People would be like, well, it doesn't matter. Um, and I think there's there's a kind of a interesting thing about particularly British conspiratorialism, which has been um, powered mostly not by like it is in the US by kind of independent Alex Jones types who are kind of well beyond the fringe of um, mm-hmm. media, but by the Telegraph. Um, it's kind of very strange, like conspiratorial bent about Corbyn being I mean, the IRA and so on and so on. So. Mm-hmm. And the, the Sun in late 2019 publishing like a literal neo-Nazi conspiracy uh, mm-hmm. in, in, in the Sun. And so there's kind of a, there's a, there, there are complicated things about uh, where that conspiratorialism comes from, where it sits in British culture in relation to American culture. But also I think that this timeline is quite important. So we get this lockdown uh, late March. When is the first sign do you think that there's been a um a shift against lockdown in the kind of mass consensus when is there that that, that first real kind of straining at the leash of, of, of lockdown i'm trying to think back to when i first started seeing it because i remember so i found my first local anti-lockdown facebook group in may i think it was um and that sort of connected me to, I suppose, the wider, the wider network um, of organisations like, yeah, Stand Up and the White Rose and things like that. So I suppose it certainly wasn't in its kind of full swing then. It wasn't in its full ascendancy, but that they seemed like a pretty established network by then, um, which makes me think it. it either was very quick or it was incredibly well organized um, because they had all of these kind of Facebook groups uh, popping up all over the place quite quickly. Or, That's really yeah, interesting. I suppose not that quickly, but a few months into lockdown would felt like a, a really long time. Yeah, yeah. My, my impression was that in America, it had been particularly connected to the kind of geography of America. So there were huge bout breaks in New York. There were bout breaks in California and so on. But actually, most American towns are pretty small and then pretty disconnected from each other. And so there just wasn't much virus. And so people were like, well, we have to lock down, but nothing's actually happening. Whereas in the UK, that geography doesn't really apply because the mm-hmm. virus is pretty evenly spread across the country at that point. Um, now, obviously, there was a kind of an emerging geography that's very small, very kind of local in the sense that uh, poor people get the virus much more than mm. rich people do, and they're much less protected from it, and they have the worst consequences as a result. So I was, I'm was i kind of wondering about the demographics as well. I mentioned the Telegraph earlier. The Telegraph, if you're not a UK listener, is uh, like a very posh, <laughs> really right-wing <laughs> newspaper in the UK. It does, has had for the last two years, three years, maybe even since the beginning of the Corbyn era a really weird conspiratorial kind of bent, very strange, um, really exper- surreal experience to read. Um, and there was other, these other groups um, like Unheard and so on. But these are quite, these are, these are media for like relatively affluent people. Mm. And I wonder, is that played out by the demographics that you're seeing in the anti-lockdown demos? Are you seeing mostly affluent people or you know possible telegraph readers and this kind of thing, like going to these things? Or is that just not the case at all? No, it absolutely is. Um, yeah, no, I spoke to, a good many people um, at the demo last Saturday, um, or the Saturday before last, sorry, 
uh, in London, which had, you know, it, it was incredibly diverse, I should say. Um, but I spoke to, you know, a good many people who were well-educated, spoke to people with PhDs, you know, people who'd um, been, you know, prescribers for the NHS. Um, so it, it wasn't a kind of, yeah, it wasn't a kind of working class uprising. Um, but, it, you know, it, it was diverse. It, it was difficult to pin down to one exact demographic. There were young, old, you know, um, black and white. Um, and yeah, kind of a mixture of classes, I would say, but it was quite a significant, um, portion of people I spoke to at least who, um, for want of a better word, were a little posh. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm interested how like infiltrated, not infiltrated, but how saturated is QAnon in this kind of, in these anti-lockdown protests, because it seems to me that there's a weird dichotomy going on between the anti-lockdown which is kind of an anti-authoritarian thing it's like we mm. don't want these government uh, actions on our lives even if however much they're there to protect public health and stuff and then the, you have QAnon which is you know we need to execute all the paedophiles <laughs> and it's a very kind of authoritarian mass execution mm. style thing it's I'm interested in how these things kind of fit together yeah I mean <laughs> I'm interested in that myself um, sometimes, you know, you do have to be careful because you can sometimes just drive yourself mad trying to find consistency in a political movement like this. Um, but, you know, for, for one thing, yeah, QAnon was uh, there in presence um, at the anti-lockdown demo. Um, you know, I saw where we go one, we go all signs, spoke to several people who had saved the children signs. Um, most of them seemed quite convinced that the um, COVID-19 crisis was a distraction, was a ploy um, by kind of uh, dark forces in the government and um, the royal family and the Vatican got mentioned a lot, obviously. Um, yeah, I remember one, um, one girl saying, um, she said, it's the Rothschilds, it's the Rockefellers, it's the royal family, I won't go on, or something like that. So it's... <laughs> um, Please go yes. on. Extraordinary. <laughs> 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 wow. Yeah, so uh, it was, yeah, it was this... So there was this kind of quite um, concrete feeling, I think, that, um, you know, that it wasn't just about, you know, lockdown measures being... Um, I, I suppose uh, authoritarian, but also that they were, they were, I suppose, uh, they were kind of falsely imposed. They were imposed under false pretenses. Um, and that that's almost where I kind of find myself having this slight departure in sympathy from a lot of those people because, you know, I, I can sit and talk all day about how I think, you know, lockdown's been poorly instated this way and poorly instated that way. And <clears throat> it can feel arbitrary. It can feel unfair. It can feel unnecessarily punitive. You know, um, I don't want to, I don't want to be forced into the pro lockdown camp <laughs> and, you know, because uh, I don't think I am, but what I struggled to make sense of or where I, where I sort of, where I get off the train as it were is when yeah the next step that seems to follow for so many people is to be like the virus isn't even real you know vaccines are poison you know etc cetera, etc cetera. it's all, all to 5g 
um, that kind of thing. Um, that was sort of where my kind of, yeah, my sort of uh, liberal sympathies, I think, ended. I, I'm really interested in this question of there being a certain grain of truth in conspiracy theories. Obviously not all of them. <laughs> Obviously not all of them. There are many conspiracy <laughs> theories that are just like straightforward about shit. Um, mm. The Protocols of Zion, the uh, birtherism about uh, Obama's birth certificate. These are just like straightforwardly, obviously racist and obviously stupid, but they're not like all totally wrong. And mm. I think that there is a, there's like a grain of truth maybe in some of these conspiracy theories. And I wonder what, you, what, what are the strain, the changes in the structure of power that you think in the UK in particular QAnon mirrors. Uh, well, I suppose you know on the on the aspect of there being a a strain of truth, it's impossible to deny essentially that there have been horrific kind of sex crimes and cover-ups, and it's um, the cover-ups tend to mirror you know straightforwardly who is powerful and who has the money to do such a thing. And I remember actually you know speaking to a woman at the Save the Children rally last summer who, you know, just said, I'm just sick of how, you know, um, rich people can, you know, do whatever they like to children and to young girls and get away with it because they're rich. And I sort of thought, well, yeah, me too. Do you know, that's why I kind of consider myself left-wing and feminist. But it was so interesting how we both arrived at such different conclusions. Um, so, you know, I think that is true. At the same time, we almost don't want to give it too much credit because actually that almost always tends to be this kind of, you know, nebulous kind of um, our opponents are, you know, incredibly devious, incredibly wealthy and, you know, all powerful. is actually just kind of quite standard for conspiracy theories in general. So, you know, it's, it, it's true, but it almost feels like facetious a bit to be like, well, that's true because it's kind of so standard to most conspiracy theories and, Sometimes I think people can make a bit of a stretch to, you know, um, with QAnon is specific to be like, you know, they've landed on a good point here. It's just sort of like, yeah, but it's almost, it's almost a really obvious point as well. You know, you'd be mad if you were coming up with a conspiracy theory not to, um, you know, have your opponents be incredibly powerful and incredibly hidden um, because that's just how it works, you know. Um, but I definitely, you know, I definitely do think um the incredibly strong female presence at that save the children rally i think probably did speak to the fact that um it's a it's a it's a concern of lots of women do you know um they kind of and it sort of feels like you know with headlines about kind of harvey weinstein and me too and then jeffrey epstein and yeah even recently like noel clark it i think it does have an impact on people um and it does kind of make sense to me um, that the feminist movement would not be the only kind of ideology to essentially capitalize on that. So yeah. when I say capitalize, I don't mean like in a cynical way, like it sort of just meant like that, you know, would kind of uh, notice the visibility of th those issues and talk about it. I guess there's a kind of nature to, to a lot of these scandals when they come out is that, it's it's rather like the the long history of them like this has been mm. going on for years it's that mm. feeling of like well what else has been going on for years and yeah it's that kind of um kind of mirroring of like real life things that then get kind of that kind of mutate into you know a de demonic democrats 
harvesting <laughs> chemicals from children and things like that. It's, yeah, absolutely. I was wondering how you um, how you go about researching this stuff because it seems to be quite hard to to like to look at it from a distance a lot like mm. a lot of these facebook groups you have to like join with an account telegram mm. groups you've got to sign up to this kind of thing how do you like keep a not not keep an executive eyes in your like in it and like believe it and stuff but how do you like keep a distance in trying to like properly assess what's going on um, is, the, is the question something like how do you how do you get a bird's eye view or how do you get a total view of the movement given that it's really fractionated is that what you're asking yeah yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. And I think probably straightforwardly, I don't, you know, um, I tend to just sort of, uh, as an observer, just kind of go with the flow. I sort of click on the links that I'm being sent through to. Uh, I'm being kind of funneled through along, you know, with all the other sheep in the sheep den. Um, I click on the links, I join the telegram groups. I'm, you know, quite keen that I experience it as somebody else who's kind of um going on the same journey I suppose um I almost don't really try to have a bird's eye view so much as I try to have kind of a uh, a user's experience of the of the movement so I, I think I probably uh do you know kind of miss that sort of slightly expansive outside view um but my kind of central interest is nearly always you know what brings people to this and what keeps them coming back uh, which is quite a kind of personal uh, user-oriented um, way of researching. Following on from that the psychological aspect I'm I'm quite interested in too because we've both been involved in researching the far right and fascist kind of online cultures mm -hmm. and there's a sometimes we have a tendency at least I do of like getting a little too, not like too into it as in like, oh yeah, this is true, but like too au fait with like the language and the mm. kind of common slang and things like this. And it's not like a problem problem, <laughs> I would say, but it's something <laughs> yeah. I like have to occasionally like step back from and like have a detox or whatever, you know, mm. like how do you kind of keep yourself from becoming a sheep? <laughs> as <a woman? laughs> Yeah, I mean, I do think this is a this kind of research does fundamentally change you, and not always in ways that you would like. Do you know? Um, I think it can make you quite a bit. So you know, I started out in kind of uh, researching anti-feminist um, and far right sort of networks around 2015, 2016, and you know, I think it can sometimes make you um, a lot harder, a lot kind of you know more prickly. Um, and you do begin think, seeing things through those users' eyes. And um, even if you can kind of distance yourself from that, that I think does fundamentally change you. Having said that, I think, you know, everyone who uh, researches this field, even kind of casually picks up on uh, little kind of uh, self-care tactics, I suppose, um, of, as you say, the kind of way to detox, to distance yourself and, I definitely think um, lockdown was quite problematic for me because for me, my way of doing distancing myself was, you know, going to the pub and like, you know, hanging out with my friends and just sort of remembering that there was just this whole social world beyond this kind of very sort of niche fringe uh, network I was studying. Uh, so during lockdown, I had to get a bit more disciplined and kind of not just use kind of my social life as a, 
as an out and instead sort of you know be like all right I'm going to look at this for two hours and then I'm not not thinking about it for the rest of the day um so I suppose yeah that kind of uh, mental hygiene almost is something as a skill I've really had to develop uh in the last couple of years but I do think it's important because it's you know one thing I often say when I'm talking to new researchers in this kind of field is that many of the people you're looking at are going to be professionally persuasive do you know they did that's how they got where they are that's how they got so many followers on youtube or telegram or whatever it's because you know they have a if not charisma uh they have a a knack essentially for convincing people for uh, persuading people and so you do just kind of have to anticipate that and i think never kind of put yourself up on a pedestal where you sort of think oh i could never could never fall for something like this because I just don't think that's really true for many people. I remember distinctly going to my local uh, shop uh, just around the corner from me and going inside and, and looking around and being like, huh, none of these people are Nazis. And <laughs> none of these people even care if they're like, no, yeah. no one else in the shop is even like considered that anyone else might be a Nazi. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like so distant from um, the kind of the mainstream. Yeah. Of, like, it can be really important. I think especially because so many of these, um, you know, far right groups or conspiracy groups or somewhere in between will often do this kind of trick where they say, you know, everyone secretly thinks like this and we're just the ones who are brave enough to say it. And it can be really easy to be like, oh my God, maybe that's true. But actually it's not true. They just say that because it sounds good do you know it sounds persuasive um so yeah it's uh definitely yeah definitely a feeling i've had too the other the other other kind of problem i have with this is that i tend to assume that there are literally only two political positions (laughs) 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 you're either a fascist or you're really far on the left um which is obviously not true uh there are all kinds of other boring things in the middle um I want to go back to this thing you were saying about uh, the kind of strange manipulation or like transformation of feminism. Maybe manipulation is the wrong word. The kind of transformation of uh, a kind of feminist impulse that you get in QAnon, um, particularly mm-hmm. around, the, I guess, the Save the Children stuff as well, um, most obviously. Um, I want to kind of link it back to something that happened, uh, I think, in the 80s, which is like the satanic panic. Mm-hmm. And uh, in, in America, there was like lots of people who were worried that um, daycare people were... Uh, abusing children in, in roughly the same way as QAnon is now sometimes yeah. like, abusing children. Yeah, I think um, they were literally like digging for tunnels under one nursery, right? Yeah. Because yeah, precisely. Yeah, yeah, and and so the, the the way to explain this, I guess the the best explanation I know of is that um, in the eighties, lots of women for the first time in like middle class um, women were essentially going uh, being sucked into the workforce as like you know, the workforce expanded in the in the neoliberal period, right? Um, and it, 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 and therefore, a whole new class of women had to give, particularly early years, children um, over to child carers for the first time, basically ever. This just hadn't really happened before. Obviously, the you know the posh, the aristocracy, and so on have uh, nannies and governors and so on. But this is pretty, not a mass phenomenon until you know pretty late in the twentieth century. And therefore, there was kind of mass anxiety that built up around that. Um, because it wasn't clear how women were supposed to relate to their really small children that were being now professionally cared for, essentially for the first time. However, it seems like in 2020, with the the lockdowns, we actually have exactly the reverse situation. Um, Schools are closed. Lots of women are working from home. um, And they're working with home and offering, given the responsibility for the children unequally 
in the household, right? Um, even when the, the the husband or the man is also working from home, right? And uh, they're not uh, they're not doing as much of the childcare. And so I'm kind of interested in these two, what seem like two opposite situations in the 80s, a decreased attachment to the child in the 2020s, or in 2020 rather, like a sudden increase in, in proximity to the child. They both seem to produce the same response. Mm. How, would, how would you explain this? How would you explain this kind of anxiety around children being essentially constituted the same way in what seem like two just totally opposed material situations? Maybe yeah. the explanation is wrong for the 80s. <laughs> That's one way. <laughs> no, no, I think you're spot on with the explanation for the 80s. Um, but I think, yeah, it, it does kind of fundamentally come down to this um, anxiety, essentially, around uh, motherhood, around, um, you know, being a good parent, around keeping your child safe from the kind of threats that the world poses. Um, you know, one of the amazing things about kind of researching the history of kind of um, sort of reactionary movements and um, particularly I've been looking at recently the kind of history of anti-vaccination movements in the UK so going back to the Victorian era and one thing that does seem to come up again and again is you know you are not being a good mother by doing this or by doing that or and in a way I think um, this is found a really um fertile ground on parenting groups on facebook and instagram nearly all of which when i spend a lot of time on them you know <laughs> i don't have kids i should say and i was feeling a little bit like anxious i was feeling a little bit like i wouldn't be a good enough mother if i even had children because it almost feels like so many of those posts are um you know treated as kind of friendly advice friendly advice don't treat you know feed your child this friendly advice don't give let give your kids this toy don't let them watch this cartoon etc um so it's all it's all structured like a support network and i noticed that you know most of the most common posters seem to be um you know younger mothers mothers with uh you know infants under the age of three to four which kind of made sense to me because it seemed like oh those are you know going to be the ones who need the most support essentially um, and as you point out may not be getting it at home um, and may not be getting it domestically and yeah so it sort of seemed to um, almost slot in you know these QAnon conspiracies the child trafficking conspiracies they almost seem to slot in too perfectly into the way that some of these groups were structured already because it was just another thing that you had to keep your heads up for, you know, um, along with like certain allergies or certain medicines certain cartoons. Now you just also just had to keep an eye out in case the cabal were secretly grooming your child for, you know, for child sacrifice. Um, and I think particularly in the bigger groups, the bigger parenting groups, the admins who were, you know, mainly just young mothers themselves, just volunteers, um, it didn't even kind of crop up on their radar, essentially, that what was being posted was not just kind of helpful mother to mother advice. It was, you know, had all the hallmarks of like a quite dangerous conspiracy theory. So it got pretty far in those groups. I think maybe the, the, the really crucial, the, the, the crucial thing that QAnon and anti, anti-vaccine things do register about contemporary modes of power is that there is 
what is like often called like biopower, right? That, that is an increasingly important part of uh, the way in which the state administers life. Um, vaccines are important tools uh, for the uh, regularization of um, biological life. I'm not saying they're nefarious. <laughs> they are because vaccines are like genuinely extremely helpful and like uh, enormous public benefit and so on um, and, and very safe. But uh, they are definitely also tools of um, the state mm. uh, to some extent, like in a very general sense. And I'm, I'm kind of interested in like the idea of the state that people have in QAnon UK in particular. In QAnon US, I totally understand it. Mm. Um, I totally understand being anti-lockdown in, in the US as well. Uh, the, US, the US government was just like, okay, you have to stay at home and um, we're not going to provide you any help at all. But mm. there were definitely cracks in the way in which the UK uh, lockdown was implemented, definitely. Like there were really big problems with it. But it wasn't nearly as, um, it wasn't like people being kind of abandoned into their houses yeah. and, in the same way that it was in the US. And also the US um, has a long history of like intense mistrust of particularly of medical institutions. Uh, for very good reason, um, but the uh, I can understand why, but that isn't the case in the UK, where the NHS is still like extremely broadly trusted, um, and and also the US has a long history of, um, particularly in Republican politics, a intense preference for um, uh, what's called the right arm of the state, right, uh, the disciplinary punitive arm mm -hmm. of the state, as opposed to the the, uh, the left arm of the state, which is kind of nurturing uh, structure. Um, nurturing kind of public health initiatives and public health and so on, right? And so why is there, despite the fact there isn't this long tradition in the UK, why is there such, why is the same model of the state as somehow invasive into life being um, deployed, I guess, in the UK, uh, do you think? Even though the, the, the model, the modes of state governance are actually totally different um, in the US and the UK. Yeah, well, I think there's something really worth bearing in mind and something I can actually forget myself. So I'm bringing it up here almost to remind myself that actually vaccine scepticism in the UK is just like not that big. It can feel very big. Um, and it certainly did, you know, when I was in the kind of middle of a rally of about 7,000 people. But like compared to other countries in Europe, compared to the US, we're actually um, doing pretty well on that front. And I think that is down to the factors that you mentioned, a uh, broad public kind of, you know, trust of the NHS. Um, yeah, I mean, even maybe a kind of weird sort of vaccine nationalism in the sense, you know, uh, not only was, you know, the person who invented the smallpox vaccine, Edward Jenner, English. Uh, so we kind of have that sort of historical, um, you know, attachment to vaccines themselves, but also AstraZeneca was created in England and yeah, that whole thing. Um, so I think, you know, broadly, uh, those histories do, do kind of come into context and those, uh, different kind of affections and attachments do reveal themselves even in, uh, the anti-vaccine, um, movement itself here in, in Britain. Um, but I think you, you do come up with like a, you did come up with a really good point about, um, their attachment to power. And that has always been true. Um, so, you know, um, within 10 years of the, the first ever vaccine, the smallpox vaccine being invented, it was being rolled out in India um, by the colonial government there um, and specifically replacing kind of local inoculation practices 
um, as a way to gain power, as a kind of way to sort of further the supposed legitimacy of the colonial government. Um, so I think that is a history that also like kind of resonates in the UK and has a, has a kind of attachment. Yes, we're sort of attached to the idea of vaccines. Yes, we're attached to our NHS. But we do also have this kind of background of slightly using the NHS and using kind of medical inventions and uh, innovations um, as a kind of way to further state power. Um, and I think that is particularly felt by, you know, um, people who come from colonized countries, uh, which is like, you know, quite a big population in the UK. Um, but uh, yeah, I think it's, it's also a kind of, it's almost the sort of slight double-edged sword of that kind of, um, that kind of affection or attachment to um, yeah, our kind of free healthcare service. Um, like, so I was really like, for instance, really intrigued by, uh, the government advice, which was, you know, stay home, wash your hands or <laughs> something like that. Uh, stay home, stay safe, protect the NHS. Do you know, um, it is quite a funny relationship, uh, that we have at once where, it's not just that we have to protect the NHS, it's we, we have this kind of almost duty to the NHS, do you know, um, that, um, yeah, that, the, that we can kind of, mod should modify our own, you know, individual behaviours to kind of protect this institution. That's quite an unusual way of looking at it, do you know? Um, that's not how um, lots of countries kind of perceive sort of a, uh, an institution which is supposed to be there to protect us. Um, and so it can kind of, I don't know, I think, yeah, um, there's a lot of kind of contradictions and I think there is a kind of double-edged sword of, uh, we all love the NHS, uh, we all have to protect the NHS, but does that kind of almost reduce trust and faith in the NHS itself when it becomes an institution that we all have to protect, um, that like is being cared for essentially by us? Does that make us kind of almost lose faith or respect in it I'm not really sure um but it kind of seemed like quite an interesting um construction of the the problem I think part of the problem with the kind of protect the NHS stuff as well as the stuff about you us protecting it it's kind of like people are in love with the idea of a past NHS like the founding mm -hmm. of the NHS which is like a quite a genuinely uh kind of massive achievement and kind of beautiful thing like this whole swath of people brought into kind of the generalized care of the nation. Um, and the NHS has been so privatized and cut up and underfunded and defunded over the, you know, however, however many decades that it doesn't, it no longer lives up to the kind of image, the hype that it has. And we yeah. have this kind of, oh, we, may, we need to protect this poor, fragile baby that is the NHS. When really, if we had been like investing in public health infrastructure and building nice hospitals and paying doctors more money and all this kind of stuff and hiring more nurses, whatever, then we wouldn't need to protect the NHS at all. Yeah, precisely. And it almost conceptualises, you know, the citizen as like a burden to a kind of public institution. Do you know uh, that, you know, your poor health is a kind of burden to this poor beleaguered NHS, which I think is just quite a sort of, yeah implicitly unpleasant way of, of framing that like sort of duality of responsibilities do you know 
I, I, I feel like I, I, I disagree with uh, <laughs> both of you here about this. I think that um, I particularly disagree with Alex is like, we wouldn't have to protect the NHS. I mean, like the, the R number of a, of, a, of a novel virus is the R number of a novel virus, like regardless. <laughs> you can have the best one in the NHS in the world, you're still not going to have enough um, you know, ventilation beds. Um, maybe we should uh, skip the conversation about the, uh, <laughs> the duties of our <laughs> <laughs> The joke I was going to make about JFK Jr. was ask not what you, as JFK Jr. once said, ask not what the NHS can do for you, but what you can do for the NHS. Just uh, joke on. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, so the, um, it's very funny. I want to think about like, thanks, Alex. Um, I, I want to think about the, um, the relationship of QAnon to the far right. Mm. Um, obviously, implicitly, because we're a podcast about the far right, we're talking about QAnon. We've kind of assumed that it is, or it seems implicit that it is. I think QAnon as a movement definitely has like claims to be something like a far right movement. I don't think it's fascism. Uh, I don't think it's fascist movement. Uh, I know that's a. Um, disagreed with uh, that's not a position that uh, for example Liv Eger who is on uh, QAnon Anonymous mm -hmm. as well that disagrees with that uh, maybe we'll have a conversation with her at some point uh, and we'll hash that out um, but it is it is it, it seems like the moment at which the far-right development of um, kind of meme magic and the kind of the, in mm -hmm. the power of memes escapes its own possibility for political determination so although they were power, they were like memes that were kind of powerful amongst the alt right and, and that were able to circumvent um, conventional thinking, they were always politically determined. They were always politically kind of rooted. Mm -hmm. And it seems like in QAnon, what happens is that the power of the meme becomes so powerful that it escapes the possibility of its own alignment with a particular political um, ideal. And in doing so. Uh, it seems to kind of mobilize all the different forms of anxiety in society. So we think about like political parties as being uh, the, the representation of a particular kind of fraction of society. Then QAnon is the party of anxiety, right? Whatever anxiety is in society, QAnon becomes the kind of the representation of it. Um, and that doesn't seem like it is conventionally far right at all. And I wonder what is from, you know, looking at this movement um, at a you know, great, uh, uh, really close up, what is your impression of the relationship between the far right more broadly and um, QAnon and maybe like also anti-lockdown protesters. Do you think the label applies? Does it make any sense to apply? Yeah, I mean, I'll kind of start off with QAnon and then kind of move on to anti-lockdown protests because I sort of think they, although they share a lot of overlap, it's they're not quite the same thing. Um, so yeah, you know, I think definitely as QAnon has uh, diversified out from its kind of original US partisan context, it's become less overtly far right and has kind of diffused, as you say, into all of these kind of uh, specific national anxieties. Um, you know, I still can't really see a way that it would be mo mobilized that not to far right ends, if that makes sense. Um, one thing that, um, yeah, before the um, Facebook crackdown on, say, the children groups that I noticed was kind of continually happening was this slight um, tendency of them towards vigilante action, posting pictures of, you know, a so-called local paedophile and stuff like that. And um, I sort of, you know, thought that although it's a good thing that the group, you know, those groups got um, struck off Facebook because they were growing incredibly fast and were you know, real, real content creators uh, in kind of a similar way to 
uh, yeah, what you called the alt-right meme magic, which uh, was just in, incredibly diffusive and was just entering all of these various different, you know, yoga groups and um, health groups and mothering groups and stuff like that. So I think it, it was good that it got struck down. But one thing that did occur to me was, you know, it would self-silo onto sites like Telegram um, and there would be much less oversight for that level of, um, yeah, vigilante action. I largely think any kind of movement that's sort of framing itself around this kind of hunt for elusive um, deviance is, you know, uh, almost certainly not going to play out well for people who's, you know, um, are already kind of ascribed deviant sexualities. So, you know, LGBT people, um, Muslim people, um, yeah, kind of you know, the homeless, single mothers, any kind of sort of group that has kind of uh, fallen under the eye of suspicion. So, yeah, it, it sort of felt a bit like even though this was it was not, you know, a fully coherent, articulate far right ideology, I almost couldn't see any way that it could move. It, I didn't see any way that it could move you know, not towards the far right eventually in this kind of semi-organic trajectory that it was going across. In terms of the anti-lockdown movement, you know, it's impossible, I think, not to look at a huge diverse group of people coming out to protest, um, you know, government decisions over the last year, which have, you know, naturally... Um, required a kind of loss of people's liberties um and not think you know hang on has has the left missed a trick here why why is the left not organizing around this why is it not capitalizing on this but there was just something something i found when i was talking to people and that i sort of couldn't quite morally get over where there just sort of seemed to be this constant refrain that you know well the people that the virus kills are just very old or you know it doesn't really kill that many people anyway and you know I sort of thought for a for a virus where I think you know over 50 percent of the deaths have been like disabled people it kind of felt very sort of unpleasantly eugenic do you know the kind of argument that was sort of being made to me very casually very cheerfully by people um, in this movement and that did kind of alarm me that sort of frightened me um, that this movement was already kind of writing off however many deaths it's been now I actually don't remember the number as you know uh, uh, not only just a kind of you know uh, uh, a sort of necessary sort of sacrifice but almost saying that it should have been more and it still would be fine. Do you know? Personally, I, I, that just alarmed me. And, you know, yeah, I have a lot of sympathies for this kind of, you know, uh, as I say, this kind of critique of lockdown. I don't like being made to be a kind of pro-lockdown person because I don't think I am. Um, but it seemed almost, yeah, it seemed sort of, that seemed quite, far right it seemed almost sort of hyper neoliberal in a way do you know um and that kind of thinking I sort of thought was 
quite a frightening prospect to kind of come up against to kind of you know interview face to face over and over again various different people um and possibly you know that just means I'm, I'm I'm just not cut out for kind of uh uh kind of welcoming these people into the fold but it did seem like probably quite a significant stumbling block if the left wants to kind of capitalize on on that level of anger I mean, I, I that's really interesting. I don't think it's possible uh, yeah. to, to like co-opt this kind of anti-lockdown or even definitely not QAnon, but the yeah. anti-lockdown stuff is, I don't know, the, the only way I can think about the left capitalising is building a, a like a compelling enough politics, which it's not, it's currently mm. not doing in the UK at least, mm. to like to like win people over just like, yeah. because we've got the better politics than the anti-lockdown stuff. And I, other than other than doing that and getting on with our own thing, I think it's it's difficult to like have a, a like a a reasonable conversation with people who think it's fine for disabled people to die. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah, I, I, and I, I yeah, I, I should be you know I I want to sort of be careful and um it it can be quite easy to kind of characterize you know um an entire group of people like that by the kind of most extreme by the most yeah. kind of conspiratorial by the most mad stuff you heard. Um, but that line, you know, that the virus wasn't really that bad was was everywhere. It wasn't just people who, you know, thought it was all made up and stuff. Those were the more moderate people I spoke to. So, um, yeah, yeah, it, it, it felt very kind of unpleasant. <laughs> the, the thing about I've been like uh, looking at a lot of the kind of more traditional, I suppose, far right and fascist kind of movements mm. in the UK. Specifically, we've talked about them a lot because we think they're really important. In at the moment, it's patriot patriotic alternative. We've done a lot of research on them. And they're actually their relationship to the anti-lockdown and to QAnon is quite interesting because it it goes through it goes through like quite a quick change of heart. Mm -hmm. So at the start of the lockdowns, they were very they were kind of pro-lockdown, pro-public mm -hmm. health. And when they saw this kind of mass of people, they kind of very quickly quickly switched to anti-lockdown COVID denialism. And they are still COVID denialists, but they they kind of also now rejected the white rose and these kind of the big stand up to mm. X groups because um, a lot of these groups can like, have the Hitler and the Nazis as kind of the big bad. They compare yeah. like, the Tories <laughs> to the big bad. And what Patriot Alternative say is actually the Nazis are great and you should, you know, really like yeah. them. And it's, uh, it's a really, uh, what I struggle to wrap my head around is that I think I had the, an idea of the far right, which is quite traditional, like BMP, uh, yeah. you know, through EDL far right. And then now to, yeah and actually there's like quite a diversity of far-right movements and it's quite it's quite easy to think of like the political spectrum as like a left all the way through to center to right and it's just mm. everyone's kind of arranged quite neatly going from one end to the other and actually there's like all these like clouds of different things going on and it's hard to like part of the challenge I think people who are trying to communicate this stuff have is passing that out and saying because there's always a trap of saying well this isn't fascist this is fascist this isn't far right, this is far right, when actually there's like a lot of stuff yeah. going on and it's everything's a bit weird. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, uh, you know, I, I share that sort of um, research background as well. You know, I, the first rallies I was going to were, you know, kind of Toby Robinson ones and stuff like that. And that was kind of much more, I think, what people have in their head when they think of the far right, especially in the UK, right? Uh, you know, the FDLA and um, all of these kind of, yeah, sort of EDL, adjacent groups and it felt very strange then going to stuff like save the children and it's you know 
women and all primarily women with children they're kind of talking about you know peace and love uh calling us star seeds and flower children and you know kind of we're all doing a meditation session where we have to reach down psychically into our wombs and that sort of stuff and that is you know almost coming up with this kind of yeah uh, this in this kind of academic background of very far right very coherently anti-feminist sort of groups uh it was a real shock to the system to be honest because you sort of start to realize kind of um how much of even your own understanding of kind of uh far-right politics is framed by things like aesthetics and history and things like that um and yeah how these things can become so kind of totally untethered from that when they kind of follow these sort of social media algorithms you later have to kind of do digital archaeology on to kind of find out how it how it went down that way i would i would definitely advocate for there being on the political spectrum at least another dimension which is the the z dimension going up and down right which just like uh material at the bottom like how mm-hmm. much of your politics is based on material and how much of your politics is based on the spirit realm mm. and i think like all across the, the map i'm not sure if there's a, a left authoritarian spirit realm i don't know if there's one of those but definitely uh, everywhere else <laughs> obviously obviously pesadism there we go that's pesadism of course yes <laughs> there it is um i have one last question which is about uh, of course like where do i think where do you think it's going to go Next, and the, the the example of being reaching down spiritually into your wombs is really interesting, <laughs> um, because when we when we think about uh, the more conventional far right, we think about um, people going onto Telegram and then being a kind of a danger moment, um, because of course lots of uh, very extreme groups organise on mm. Telegram, and those are the groups that tend to do terrorism basically. Mm. But I wonder if there's actually an opposite trajectory in QAnon, um, and particularly in the QAnon, uh, uh, maybe amongst the women you were talking about, is that the more and more pilled they become mm. the more and more passive they become because the fight against the big bad shifts from uh having any kind of material basis to being essentially a kind of a spiritual mm. fight and so the storm eventually of kind of QAnon law mm. comes on the astral plane you know and like <laughs> it, uh, you've got to you know i um this is a and maybe you get to this kind of situation where I, I, I think this is a silly summary. I'm going to do it anyway. Um, the earth is flat, race is real, live, love, laugh. Um, <laughs> and I think that there's like a kind of a, um, like a kind of a, a being a totally pilled seems to just like equate being more and more passive about politics mm. in general. And I wonder if you think that's a viable trajectory. And if not, then like, well, where else do you think these movements might go uh, in the future? now that it seems like people are vaccinated in the UK and it's kind of fine. <laughs> so, I mean, like, particularly where does anti-vax go and you know, that kind of thing? Yeah, in a way, I actually think, you know, if it sort of just became a sort of, maybe this is a slightly misogynist framing, but a sort of spiritual knitting group, I wouldn't really mind, do you know? Um, yeah. If that's just what they're going to do, then, then fine, good for them. Um, but I think almost what alarms me is less kind of, you know, this kind of movement towards the telegram and then kind of these acts of sort of random spontaneous violence, although I think that probably will occur, but actually gaining more legitimacy, um, particularly in, you know, um, you brought this up right at the beginning of our conversation, particularly in 
a media environment which kind of likes conspiracies, you know, to a certain extent. And particularly, I think, as more and more people get vaccinated, the vaccine rollout, you know, continues apace in the UK. It sort of seems to me that, you know, I kind of hope that there are some sort of safeguards being put in place for what I think will be the next stage in the kind of... uh, this sort of movement, which will be, you know, to say I got the vaccine and it made me terribly sick and uh, it made me disabled and it made me terribly ill. And um, uh, recently I've been seeing lots of stuff which is saying, you know, that if you've been vaccinated, you were contagious and it's giving children rashes when they go to hug their vaccinated grandma and stuff like that. Because I think it applies to a real love of the British media and particularly the tabloid media, which is, you know, uh, a, a mother's testimonial do you know and you know I'm just I'm just a mother and here's what well, something terrible that happened to my son and I'm kind of speaking out against it um, that stuff is everywhere do you know that stuff is everywhere in the in UK news they love it uh, the Telegraph actually I should say has already uh, I think yeah this was a good few months ago uh, published an article where it talked about um, parenting safeguard groups on Facebook which um <laughs> which was decoding secret pedophile codes on social media. And you were just like, that is quite clearly just Save the Children QAnon front group. Um, so, you know, this stuff has a history, I think, of diffusing through. Um, and my hope is, um, although I don't have much hope for it, that there is some kind of control in place to sort of not let those, um, yeah, those stories kind of get too far without some kind of... Um, without yeah some kind of kind of level of fact checking or whatever um but i think particularly this idea that yeah uh, that seems to be really popular right now that vaccinated people themselves are contagious um are kind of like yeah infectious in some way um seems to kind of yeah have quite a lot of momentum behind it but i suspect as the kind of unvaccinated population dwindles that will move to this you know that the vaccine had terrible side effects on me and I want to be clear you know they may not necessarily be lying we do know that vaccines have side effects but it's if it becomes a kind of mobilization movement um then I think yeah that could have sort of a real ripple effect I have been vaccinated and I feel fantastic I want to be clear for the how's the 5g signal yeah, it's very good, actually. My internet has improved hugely. It was very, very bad in my house. <laughs> and now I can get like, you know. <laughs> oh, I, know um, I have one very stupid question. Uh, what conspiracy theories do you believe in? What conspiracy theories do I believe in? Oh, that's a really good question. Mm. Maybe I should uh, divulge, first of all. I'm genuinely, genuinely quite like suspicious about Building 7. Oh, yeah? Yeah. What's Building 7? Building seven was the the one of the buildings at nine eleven. Oh, which, stop it! Um, oh, stop. Uh, I'm this in. I know, wait, I, no, I'm no, this no in. I do have one. I've actually, I'm, actually, <laughs> I'm actually halfway um, through reading a book, which has basically convinced me that Charles Manson was a CIA informant of some kind. That seems totally plausible. Yeah, that, that seems, seems totally like possible. I'm like already on board. I don't need to hear anything. <laughs> I'm there already. I'm in it. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm reading this book by yeah. It's actually just like a really the sort of meta story is, you know, a journalist who gets asked to write a, uh, you know, 500 word piece for Premier magazine on just kind of, you know, the anniversary of the Manson murders and the impact it had in Hollywood. 
And eventually Yats just starts like, it takes him like 10 years and he never writes the piece because he becomes so obsessed with all of this paperwork that doesn't line up. And the fact that <laughs> local police seemed to be aware of Manson, but, you know, didn't arrest him for three months and why that was. And um, I am, yeah, I'm halfway through, but I'm, I'm pretty convinced. So the idea is that he wasn't just a CIA informant when he was arrested, but beforehand. Beforehand, yeah. Oh, and was was Helter Skelter and all that kind of stuff, was that also a CIA plant? Yeah, he says that Helter Skelter was like not the real motivation. It was essentially something that was kind of invented by the prosecution. Um, and yeah, that essentially the um, FBI rather than the CIA had sort of had um, connections with Manson because they liked that he was so antagonistic towards the Black Panthers um, and were sent basically secretly hoping that they could get him to do a bit of terrorism for them on behalf of the Black Panthers. Oh, God. On this is, ri- this, is, ri- this is written for me. This is written for me. I'm on board. <laughs> I'm there. I'm so thrilled. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I can't remember the author's name, but it's called, the book's called Chaos, and it's, it's a great read. I'm really enjoying it. Fantastic. That's uh, really good to know. That really rewrites as well the history of that um, a period of American um, neo-Nazi groups, right? Like James mm. Mason, who's really inspired by Charles Manson, mm. uh, who I've always kind of thought might be a Fed. Um, anyway, so <laughs> that's, history rhymes. Yeah. Um, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on, Annie. Um, anything you want to plug? Um, I've got an episode which um, out with QAnon Anonymous. It's sadly a premium episode, but if you are subscribed... Uh, you can go and listen to me interviewing everybody at the rally and uh, getting also getting cyberbullied in real life for wearing a mask. Oh wow! Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I got, I got called a fucking communist by one guy. Just for wearing a mask. I think yeah. you need to do a little more than that, don't you, to be I a am. communist? <laughs> Literally, just just for wearing my nice little mask. Yeah. Um, but apart from that, no, I don't have anything to plug. But this was great conversation. Fantastic questions. Yeah. Thanks a lot for listening. If you enjoyed that, then you can help support the podcast on Patreon. All the support we get means a lot to us, and it really does help us grow this project. So that's patreon.com slash 12 rules for what, and you can sign up for as little as $2 a month. Thanks a lot, and I will see you very soon. I'm going to make those pompous academics regret kicking out such a genius. Deciding to build my lab and do my research. The Time Talks Podcast. Have you ever stared at a 500-page book and wish you could just talk to the author about their ideas instead? If so, the Time Talks Podcast, part of the Channel Zero Network, is for you. Where we discuss history, politics, music, and art with an anti-authoritarian and anarchist perspective. The Time Talks Podcast. What's this light? Feel different. The Time Talks Podcast. Twelve rules. <laughs>